But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. In today's episode, Paul and Richie discuss the Roman Emperor Commodus, successor and son of Marcus Aurelius, Rome's last good emperor. However, unlike his father, Commodus was not as wise or just ruler. Instead, he was known for his extravagant and erratic behavior, which quickly led to the decline of the Roman Empire. During his reign, Commodus became increasingly obsessed with his own power and grandeur. He saw himself as a godlike figure that was cruel and capricious, demanding to be worshipped, indulging in lavish spending, and executing any and all who he saw as a threat. Under Commodus' leadership, the Roman Empire suffered greatly. The economy faltered, crime rates soared, and the military suffered significant losses, triggering the end for the once great empire. Join us as we discuss Commodus, his leadership, the empire he inherited, and the beginning of its downfall. So without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome everyone to another episode of the History in Motion podcast. Today we are going to be talking about Marcus Aurelius's son, Commodus. So if you haven't listened to our previous episode, I'd recommend you listen to that first because we talk um, in depth about who Marcus Aurelius was, um, how he rose to power, um, all the great things that he accomplished in his life, including his famous uh, work known as Meditations, which is still one of the literary classics um, of today. And then his ultimately his decision to pick Commodus, his natural-born son, um, as his successor, and the disaster that Commodus was. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go give that a listen. Um, that will kind of set the stage for our conversation today. So when we look at Marcus Aurelius and Commodus and why historians care so much about this decision was the end of Marcus's death was 200 years of what we call the Pax Romana, which was 200 years of peace and prosperity within the Roman Empire. When Commodus took over, and especially around the time of his death, the empire has started this decline. Um, and it's pretty harsh from the start of Commodus all the way down to the end of the empire itself, um, it's the western half. There are, you know, some peaks and valleys where some better emperors come in, get things back on track, then another terrible emperor takes over and accelerates that. But definitely, I think Commodus is the, a great accelerator of this of this decline and really moves Rome into a, yeah, I guess that slow and steady decline is the best way to put it. So I think, Richie, we're going to kind of maybe start off with just giving a little bit of a bio of before Commodus became emperor. And then we will get into the craziness of him being an emperor. And I kind of teased last show that there are some incredible stories that we're going to get to today. So definitely stay tuned for some some things that we would say are too crazy even for Hollywood to put into movies. So, <laughs> yeah, so stay tuned yeah. for that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's such a, a good point for this particular episode because it is a bit unique in terms of our approach, right? We are mm-hmm. kind of dovetailing it and directly connecting it with last episode just because it's such a unique kind of um turning point in the in this period of history you have marcus Aurelius, who kind of represents 
um, this very successful <clears throat> period of, of the Roman Empire, immediately followed by, you know, his son kind of being associated with the, you know, the initiating point or the trigger point for, you know, the the downfall or, or the, the initiation of the decline of the Roman Empire. <clears throat> so I think you don't you don't always see that in history. So it's interesting to to see that now. Um so Commodus was born um one in one sixty one AD. He lived until one ninety two AD. Uh like we said, he was a Roman emperor um who ruled from one eighty to one ninety AD. And he was born in I'm gonna I'm not gonna say this very well, uh Lanuvium near Rome, Italy, as the son of the famous Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. So it's it was kind of hard to find any real details about his um I guess his childhood. It, it doesn't seem to be very well documented. But I think just based on kind of historical norms and traditions that we've kind of discussed about already in, in, in this particular period of time, there's a lot of inference that we can kind of do here. And I think it's probably pretty safe historically to assume that most of these are more or less correct. Uh, but like similar to his father being born in a family of significant status, obviously you're the, fa- you're the son of an emperor, um, you're going to have resources and opportunities that kind of just come along with that. So his, he, his uh, Commodus received a, a very privileged education as the son of a Roman emperor. He was tutored by some of the most distinguished scholars and teachers of his time, uh, including the f- uh, philosopher and writer uh, Herodes Atticus, the historian Cassius Dio, and the rhetorician Marcus Cornelius Fronto. So he And he was also trained in, you know, various other subjects of study. So this included philosophy, rhetoric, Roman law, so kind of those classical, traditional um, subjects that you kind of associate with, with elite studies at this time. He was also educated in military tactics and strategy, as, you know, he was expected to become a military leader and the commander-in-chief uh, of the Roman armies. However, and this is, this, is the, this is the however that I think everyone's kind of expecting if you tuned in, uh, despite his, you know, very privileged upbringing and education and, you know, wealth of resources, he was, you know, known for his lack of interest in intellectual pursuits. Um, he did, however, love physical activity, especially gladiatorial games, which we'll see play a pretty major role in kind of the crazy stories uh, around his life and other sports. He preferred to spend his time hunting, wrestling, engaging in other physical activities rather than focusing on his studies. Um, you know, kind of allowing us to surmise a little bit, like unlike his father, who was obviously a very deep thinker, who was very invested and took time for intellectual pursuits. His son was more obsessed with physical activity. And, you know, some historians say that that kind of lack of intellectual pursuits off is what kind of led to you know, his inability to make critical decisions and, and lead strategically or think strategically when he was, you know, eventually the emperor. I think too, we have to think, remember, he is young. He's a boy. This is, you, know, a boy. you can talk to most young boys and teenagers on what they want to do. And studying is probably pretty low on that list, sure. but most young boys aren't going to be co-emperor at 16 and sole emperor at 19. So I guess the stakes are a bit different. Um, one thing with him too, is he did follow Marcus around for most of his life. He was, on the northern frontier, um, living in military camps, you know, probably being part of the military tradition of, you know, getting up, you know, going for runs, staying in physical shape. Um, I, and so you can probably see that being in that environment maybe 
was part of what he liked on the physical side of things. Sure. But again, living in a frozen tent probably wasn't the best thing in the world. Um, and there's something to that we see with, with Commodus and he was kind of almost like a little bit of a mascot for the troops when he was younger. You know, he's this little kid kind of running around the, the camps. And I think the soldiers really took a liking to him just based on, you know, you're out here with a bunch of, a bunch of guys fighting a bunch of guys and dying of disease and cold and, and these terrible battles. And, you know, it kind of brings a little bit of a smile to your face to see, you know, a little kid running around and, you know, just ha- enjoying life in a much more simple way than, you know, with all the terrible things going on. So you can definitely see he starts to get a liking by the troops um, at a pretty young age. And we'll see that that's important for him um, as time goes on. Yeah, it's interesting to say, I think, that particular perspective. So I was just when I was doing some research on him. So he was the youngest of their children between Faustina and Marcus. And, you know, he was initially treated to being kind of the heir of, heir uh, to the throne. But his father's death while on military campaign in 180 AD kind of forced him into that early succession plan for him to become emperor. So and, and I can think you could see you know, probably a bit of conjecture here. But, you know, the likelihood of what's going to happen when you put such a young person um, into such a uh, position of power. Yeah. And especially at that age too. And like, I always think too, he was born, I think he was born a twin and his other twin died when he was like four or five years old, something like that. So maybe this oh. was a, you know, a good and evil twin sort of situation going on <laughs> and the evil one survived. But, um, you're right. I think everything does come to him quite young, um, with the time of being ancient times where kind of talked about the last episode where healthcare is not really, yeah. It's, it's around, but it's not, it's not keeping people alive. You know, kids making it to, to adulthood is, you know, quite rare, maybe 50, 50 chance for a lot of these kids. Sure. And, you know, he's, he's got this life kind of coming to him. People are dying all around him from the, um, the plague at the time. And I think we believe it's what gets Marcus in the end too, is this smallpox like plague that's going through. And so, yeah, I think he's he's penned to be that leader. Marcus chooses him to basically keep some stability because, again, he doesn't know when he's going to die. And we don't even know Commodus could have picked up the plague too and, and died at a young age, and nobody really knows. So there's a lot of just, you know, touch and go. And I think there's something in meditations where Marcus says something like, you know, make sure you, you know, take value and, and almost like kiss your kids goodnight every night because you don't know if they're going to be alive in the morning which it sounds pretty morbid today, but when you think back then, right, that was a legitimate thing. And Marcus had seen it where he would go to bed one night and he'd wake up and one of his children would be dead. So this is something I think that, you know, there's death all around Marcus. He ends up choosing Commodus. Commodus takes over um, and at the age of 16 as co-emperors with Marcus to really establish that rule. And then Commodus takes over at the age of 19, which is still very young um, and to be, you know, sole emperor. So, I think maybe we can get into a little bit of what happens immediately after Marcus's death and just how from a pretty early on stage, we can see that this man is not like his father in the slightest. And to the point where rumors were flying around that his mother had an affair with a gladiator and that's who Commodus actually was. And he wasn't actually the son of, of Marcus. So, um, so like I said, Commodus takes over at 19, um, from the get go, many scholars see him as a self-absorbed boy who loves sport, possibly a sociopath and somebody with nobody to keep him in check, but the people mostly loved him. The army also loved him too, for most of his reign. And it wasn't really until the end where people outside of his inner circle and in the Senate, um, people like that were in power, didn't really see him as a terrible leader. And we'll get into why he kept 
how he was able to keep the masses and the army so so uh, happy. So the first thing he did is to keep the army happy is Marcus dies. Commodus immediately abandons the campaigns in Germany, um, where his father made so much progress. We don't know for sure if this was a good decision or a bad decision. He may have Marcus may have said, "Hey, look, we're ready to wrap up. You can probably head back," you know, because maybe Marcus was too sick to travel. And then once he died, he's like, "Let's go back." Um, but then again, there's some argues, some people argue that there was probably a few years left that he could have done to really solidify things, but he didn't want to go back. So he signed peace treaties with the German tribes, marched back to Rome. Um, so what kind of we see here is why the army is going to be happy is your soldier, you're fighting in the frozen frontier, and you are told you can go home to see your family and, and go back to your land. That's going to make any soldier happy. Of course. And, yeah. part of, and so part of it is, did he go back because he thought the work was done, or did he just want to go back to Rome and do his gladiatorial things. We don't know for sure, but I think we can make some assumptions based on that. Um, so when he returned to Rome, he gave every citizen a gift of free money and through many, many games. So games being horse races, gladiatorial battles. And I think that's interesting about games in Rome. It was games were used as a way of kind of population control, public order, keeping the people mm-hmm. happy. So all citizens were able to go into the Colosseum for free. They could go to horse races for free and the state would fit the bill for all of that. So, when communists just kept throwing games, 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 so people are really happy. It's like this guy's spending all this money on us. But then again, that, the guy that's interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, it's in, I, the thing that came to mind while we were talking about this. Um, he wasn't this kind of hated or loathed ruler from from the get go. He actually seemed to have you know some popularity amongst the population and the armies initially, and you know this kind of interplay of him seeing himself as this kind of gladiatorial gamesman kind of figure is very interesting and in how it kind of plays in to the to the broader psyche of, of of the population that he's governing over. He obviously seems to understand at some level that this is what the people want to some mm-hmm. degree. Definitely. It's what he wants, it's what the people want. Yeah. But the the guy who's running the treasury is gonna start looking at him really soon and saying Hey buddy, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is we can't keep this up, right? And I think it's the classic emperor sort of strategy of sure. Give the people what they want. Give the army what they want. And what do they want? Games and money, food. Yep. Give them yeah. all that. They're they're gonna love you, right? But keep them fed um, and entertained, right? I think that was exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ba- basic, basic stuff. Um, so to be able to start paying for a lot of this stuff, though, this is just interesting about how we look at where we are, you know, today in the early 2023. Um, so communists started devaluing the Roman currency. So basically, the coins oh, wow. would have gold and silver in them. And so this mm. is a common practice amongst emperors and it gets worse and worse as time goes on is they start to take a little bit of silver or gold out of the coin and replace it with a cheaper metal. So sure. they can print essentially not prints, but develop more coins um, so they can pay for these things. But even back then inflation is very much a real thing. Sure. And so, you know, I have a quote written down here. Some that we would say is, you know, even the Romans knew you couldn't just print more money. Like there's a a point where the current, the value gets so low. Right. And so inflation explodes. Um, the current, the, the, the empire is now in economic struggles based on communists continuing to devalue his currency. It was the most, I think that it was ever done since Nero and Nero had kind of the same sort of mindset as well. So, that's kind of how he's able to get through, you know, giving the army money, giving the citizens money, throwing all of these games. And, you know, people are starting to question like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. But 
Comnus really has little interest in business of administration and tended throughout his reign to leave the practical running of the state to a succession of favorites, beginning with Satorius, his, a male lover who is a freedman from Nicomedia, which is, uh, I believe, up near kind of Turkey area. So again, a freedman is a former slave who is now free. So again, that's a big like people looking down like, why is the emperor taking a former slave as his male lover? And then, um, you know, just whoever's close to him, whoever he can trust, whoever his buddies are at the time, he's putting into power. So merit is kind of um, going out, going out the window. And so Satorius realizes that, okay, we were devaluing the currency a lot and I don't have enough money to pay for these games. So how can we get more money? Well, it's very easy. We'll just take it. We'll take it from the rich senatorial Romans. So these are men in the Senate own lots of land. So this is the typical kind of process that Commodus and, and his crew would go through is they would create fake charges you know, we'd say, hey, Richie, you're actually conspiring against the emperor. Here's some bogus document that we've created. We're going to take all of your land and sell it to the highest bidder. And then you're exiled for a moment. Now have to go live somewhere and get out of the way. And you now this starts slowly, but then it ramps up and up and up until it becomes the norm. And so it gets to a point where senators are now, they don't know if they're going to wake up and there's going to be a knock at the door and the guard is going to be there and being like, you know, we have proof that you were trying to conspire against the state in some way which they know is false but you know what they need money so they're going to do it and so again senators are now freaking out where they're always looking over their back um the other piece too is the senate now is quite weak it used to be this really powerful institution but again with men being kicked out of the senate communists just not caring what they think and then also Commodus and his friends would sell political office, which includes the Senate, um, to the highest bidder. So this is another way for them to make money. So merit is out the window. The whole cursus honorum that we talked about last time where, you know, it would take you 20 years to build your way up to become a senator if you weren't already part of that rank. And you would do all these different political positions in service of Rome. That's pretty much out the window. If you have money, you want it, you can you can have it. There's actually stories of men being assigned to be a prov- uh, governor of a province. They would leave Rome to be governor. By the time they would get there, they'd found out that Commodus or one of his buddies had sold the governorship of that very province to somebody else within the time that this person was traveling to that place. So they'd get there and be like, actually, you got to go back because we sold it to somebody else. And you're right. actually not governor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So a really just kind of way to wrap up is Commodus was corrupt. He was short-sighted for sure. And I think the most important thing is, is he was aggressively passive. He just mm. didn't care. He just kept saying, you guys figure it out. As long as my I can go do my games, I don't have to deal with any of this I'm stuff. Good. I don't have to. Yeah, I'm just going to like he's living like a summer camp almost. Right. And he can do whatever <laughs> he wants. That's interesting you say that. So it seems like there's, you know, and we were talking about this offline um, that it's easy to paint Commodus as this kind of caricature of this madman, crazy emperor who was extravagant in personality and very eccentric, which, you know, is true to some degree like 100%. Um, But then there's also the reality of kind of what's going on at Rome, you know, outside of anything that Commodus is responsible for or is able to actually handle, right? So you had kind of mentioned the, you know, the economic climate and decline. So you have the, you know, the devaluation of, of, of the dollar, of the Roman dollar at this point. The gold coins are being um, kind of, withered down and being mixed with other cheaper alloys. And then I'd also read that there's, you know, at this time in terms of the labor market um, within Rome, that there's like, there's kind of come to a point where they're overtly reliant on slave labor. 
and it's probably sure. stretching their treasury and, and you know budgetary expenses thin because you know a lot of the public works i imagine um any construction projects things of that nature are probably relied on slave labor at this point for sure and i think that's kind of for as long as rome has existed slaves have been a very key piece of, of that economy but i think it's I know we did talk about Lincoln a little bit while back in the transatlantic slave trade. It, it is a bit different in Rome. It is not an sure. ethnic slavery. I just think, mm. it, just to draw that distinction, it's more of a conquered people's sort of situation. So the Romans would go into Gaul, which was modern-day France, take a bunch of slaves back. But then there's a lot of stories of you know, ex-slaves gaining their freedom and then being able to live as a citizen of Rome. Um, so it's a little bit different in that sense, but you're right, like, relying on all of the slave labor means you've got to keep bringing in more slaves. And then mm. as you're devaluing your currency, like you have, you know, people you're actually paying wages for, that's going to start to go up and everything's going to grow and grow and grow. Like, and there's a slave market as well too. And how is that changing? And there's a whole probably economic analysis here on, you know, how the inflation of these coins and, you know, the pieces of how do you rebuild too after this plague has just ravaged your whole exactly. empire. Right. And there's so few people. So yeah, it's an interesting time for the empire and, you know, having someone who's going to devalue your currency this way and just spend it on games when you really need to rebuild this economy up because there's just the manpower is so small and the army needs to be rebuilt and all of these things. Yeah, not a great place to be, I would say. No, and I think that's maybe we just double down on that for a second to make it like crystal clear. Because um, I think, you know, it's important to to kind of level set on what's actually going on at the ground level. So we have this economic decline that's going on that's not really within the controls. I said maybe like, direct control of what Commodus can or cannot do. I'm sure and there is some influence there being the emperor. You have this kind of political instability with corruption, you know, positions being for sale, right? It kind of this hodgepodge of of uh, of of motivations and, you know, interplay of kind of positioning different um I guess governors and, and consuls against each other. You have military pressure that's still kind of existing and carries forward. You know, we had mentioned it in the Marcus Reilly's uh, episode that, you know, there's always this kind of threat of siege by the Germanic tribes um, that continue to be a thorn in the empire. Um, we had mentioned the plague as well, right? Um, the Antonine plague is probably still kind of, um, I don't know if it's going on still or they're kind of dealing with the aftermath of it. Um, but definitely kind of another factor that's kind of, you know, real at the ground level, but again, outside of Commodus' control. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, the plague's probably still around in some capacity, absolutely feeling the effects of it. Um, but then it is kind of a peaceful time for Rome, like the Marco Mani and the Quadi that we talked about last time, those Germanic tribes, they've been beaten, they've signed their peace treaties, and they're also been crushed too by this plague, right? So they're taking time yep. to regroup. Parthians have just been defeated in the east. It's not really a lot of threats. Everybody's just kind of licking their wounds and, and getting ready to invade once again uh, at some point. And so I think the empire is also very lucky at this point because if, you know, we talked about it last week, if the rules were flipped and Commodus was first and then Marcus Aurelius was, was second, who knows what would have happened because they needed a lot of intervention during the time of Marcus Aurelius <laughs> to, to block these things off. So... Yeah, things aren't things aren't good in the empire right now. With just, I think like the the institutions are so again corrupt. One number one, but two, just like do not have the prestige that they had before. Like the Senate was, you know, even during the time of these emperors, didn't have as much power during the Republic, but still very very important. 
you know, Trajan, one of the things he would do is every time he came to Rome, his number one thing would be like, I need to, you know, I will sit in on Senate sessions. I'm not just going to send a subordinate. Like every time I'm here, I need to show the Senate that I care. And the Senate really appreciated that where some emperors just didn't care. They would send subordinates. And so it was just like that triangle of people's Senate and army. Got to keep them all happy in some sure. capacity, which leads into, you know, communists kept the people happy with their games, kept the army happy with giving them money and not making them go fight any wars. But he really didn't keep the Senate happy. So that leads into the conspiracies against communists. So they they started quite quite soon. So again, with the pro- with the property confiscation, senators started to worry about getting a knife in the back or being exiled from Rome. And this is communists' reign continue. They definitely had to you know be increasingly worried. So let's we're going to enter here Lucilla, who's communists' older sister and the widow of Lucius Verus. So just a reminder, Lucius Verus was. Marcus Aurelius is co-emperor for, I think, about eight or nine years. Um, he died well before communists took over. I think it was almost 10 years before. Um, so, But she's still around. She still has the title of Augusta, which means wife of the emperor. So she still has a lot of power from that title. However, again, we go back to what we talked about last time, and the Romans love a nice you know, evil stepmother sort of hmm. woman pulling the strings behind the scenes. Um she was, they believe, was jealous that um, Commodus's wife actually had now all the power because she was the true Augusta, we could call it. Um, so they believe that she engineered the conspiracy against her brother. And we don't know for sure if whether it was people came to her or she orchestrated, but was definitely involved in some capacity. So what happened was two ro- senior Roman officials conspired with her to assassinate Commodus, but they botched the attempt. There's a little like Shakespearean piece to this where... One man jumped out of the sh- was basically waiting for Commodus. He jumped out of the shadows and yelled, "See, this is what the Senate sends you," and then tried to I think, attack him with some sort of weapon. But within that time, where he yelled that you know that line that would make it great for a nice play in, in theater, mm-hmm. it gave the guards a, you know a half second to to realize what was oh, going man. on and actually blocked uh. the attack. Right? You know, the first thing they, if you're doing a conspiracy or you're trying to assassinate someone, the first thing people should hear is person yelling or yeah hearing a stab of a knife or something that's so making a grand statement uh for dramatic flair exactly like again shakespeare would have loved it and it would have made a great yeah, play but yeah, yeah. i think uh yeah it doesn't doesn't really accomplish your goal so he was he was stopped um was was tortured and his co he gave up his co-conspirators uh, who were all executed lucilla was given up as well she wasn't killed because people that wouldn't really look good if the emperor is going sure. to kill his his sister, but, um, or sorry, his, I guess his aunt at this time. Um, so basically what happens is he, um, exiles her to the Island of Capri and then kills her once kind of everybody forgot about her. So again, she's going to get killed, but, um, you know, didn't do it right not away. that moment. Yeah. But what happens is there was two parts to this conspiracy. They knew if they were going to kill communists, they had to kill Satorius as well. So he turns up dead a few days later. And then apparently this is what threw communists into a rage. Um, when some, some info was given to him about one of the conspirators. Um, at least five men were killed after this, including the two consuls for the year. So again, when we talked about this before, was the consuls before there was an emperor were the two men every year who would lead the entire republic. And they cons- consistently, or so they continued throughout the time when the emperor existed. Didn't have the power, obviously, that they did before because the emperor had that ultimate power, but were still very influential in the uh, in the government. So again, two both consuls were killed. Um, he even fired two future emperors, one called Pertinax and one called Septimius Severus from their governorship since they failed to capture a conspirator. So 
I kind of written down here. I call it like it's like almost a Mad King vibes here, right? It's this, yeah, yeah, legit, yeah, freaking out about this, and rightfully so, right? Like your right hand man has been killed, who was also one of your many lovers. Who again, there's probably an emotional element to that, for sure. You know, killing men involved who he thinks are involved, we don't know, but then also firing two of your established governors because they failed to catch a conspirator. Like again, most emperors are going to realize like, okay, you can reprimand them. Maybe you can not give them when they want to renew their governorship. You maybe don't want to do that, but to just fire them all together because they failed to capture a conspirator. I think, you know, again, that's going to lead to instability and it's just, again, a bit over the top, I think for, for Commodus. Yeah, that's the mad King kind of uh, theme is definitely prevalent during this discussion, I would say. Um, you definitely get that from just doing a quick Google <laughs> on some oh, yeah. of the antics that um, he's kind of famous for. But I, I, I find it in, it's it's interesting to me, you know, that this kind of backdrop of, of what's going on in Rome. And you, I wonder if he ever thought, you know, this kind of initial success that he was having from his approach for like games and paying the military off. You know, you've had this kind of balance that's been struck between the people, the military and the Senate, right? The kind of governing body that, you know, allows you to, you know, govern more effectively. You obviously need buy-in from everybody. Um, it's curious to me that he kind of just <laughs> forgot about them, you know, in, in a way where he, he was so focused on the gamesmanship and the people that governing wasn't necessarily a very high priority. It was more of a means to an end that I think, you know, based on what we're talking about and, you know, what, what at least historians have kind of uh, communicated is that he used it, but it wasn't necessarily used in the most effective way. It was more to kind yep. of, you know, he, he, it's almost like he, he created instability, but he didn't use the instability for his own political and personal gain, which obviously yeah. is a recipe for short-term success, but uh, inevitably long-term disaster. Yeah, I almost think you might even be giving him too much credit. I just don't think he cared. Like, it's from what I've been reading. It really? Just okay. like, yeah. It's just like, I'm just going to, I want to fight in the, you know, I want to fight as a gladiator. I want to have these wild parties back at the palace. And I just don't sure. just want to yeah. live this lifestyle that doesn't really evolve leading as an emperor. And I think, like, he likes the power and the prestige and the money. Sure. But, like, when it came to governorship. Not again, a high priority. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, you know. Whatever I think things came to him, it seemed like if he could just push it on to somebody else and have to deal with it, that was the best thing, which kind of leads to some other things that he did where he fired most of his father's old advisors and military leaders and replaced them with his own people. So I think we can kind of see that, like, I bet you if you're a seasoned um, official or advisor of Marcus Aurelius, you understand how good government works. You're going to try to advise communists to do the right thing and tell him what he needs to do. Commodus doesn't want to hear that though. So he's going to fire you and probably find yeah. one of his own guys who's going to say, Oh yeah, no problem. We'll handle that. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah. We'll go handle this. And so this kind of leads to, you know, in Rome, those murders and confiscations of property for anybody who disagrees with Commodus became a, a theme. Um, and so we'll get into that in a little bit more, but I think like one piece maybe we should talk about here is this assassination attempt. We think we can sure. start to see as a bit of a turning point. And it's a common theme. I think we see in history where I've got written down here, like, assassination attempt leads to paranoia which leads to bloodshed which leads to paranoia for everybody involved and then it's just kind of sure, like an yeah, infinite yeah. loop and it gets worse yeah. and worse and like we see yeah. it with hitler right he got slightly more crazy 
every time someone tried to kill him. 100%. Think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think we see that with Commodus here is this assassination attempt definitely said, well, everybody's out to get me, so I'm going to put my own people in charge and they're not going to push back and make me happy and I can continue to live the life I want to live. Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Like I know we haven't gotten to his personal excess yet, but it's, uh, I wonder how much that is at play with the increase in paranoia because based on what I read, it seems like, Again, he had this kind of early success. He was able to kind of be this this, per, this emperor of the people. And then, you know, the trigger point being the, you know, this attempted assassination. He becomes increasingly paranoid and eccentric and kind of sporadic in his actions and, and thoughtfulness. And that seems to, I think, maybe manifest or even kind of take on new heights um, with some of his uh, personal um you know, experiences and, and events that he's kind of been holding for himself. Definitely. I think yeah, it's this, like we talked about ultimate power being so young. Now this assassination attempt, it just, I think there was just all these catalysts that just kind of led to an extra dial you know, on the dial. We're going from, you know, maybe he's a four on the crazy scale to five to six to seven. And exactly. we'll get to when he gets to 11 pretty soon. So I think this is a good time as we kind of roll through some of the, Maybe before we get into the crazy stories, we'll get into a little bit of more about his governance and again, just letting anybody, um, you know, putting in his own people. But you also start to see why he was such a weak leader was he let smart people take advantage of him. They knew that he didn't care or he didn't have the foresight to understand when people were starting to use him or the political savviness. Um, so one thing here is he has a new favorite administrator and this person's name was Cleander. So the first kind of story we hear about Cleander was there was a detachment of soldiers from Britain who decided to march to Rome to air their grievances about a harsh general that they had. Um, most think that this general is actually doing a good job, you know, harsh, harsh disciplinarian, you know, making sure that they were always ready to fight. But the soldiers didn't like that, so they marched all the way to to um, to Rome. Commodus gets word of this, and Cleander basically tells them that. Um, they're actually marching. Well, part of what they're doing is there's a conspiracy against you from this general to take over and become emperor. Coincidentally enough, Cleander had some issues with this general. So he kind of uses this as a way for to, to convince communists to allow him to execute the general plus his whole wife and family. Kind of like we see in gladiator, sort of that sort yep. of situation. Right. So again, gladiator being fiction, there's a lot of truth into those, those stories. Um, but then also what comes from this is there was a purge of senators, so murders, confiscations, all that stuff. And coincidentally, they were all, or for the most part, enemies of Cleander. So again, this kind of shows that Cleander came in, understood he could use Commodus to his advantage, get ridiculously rich, and, and use him to basically, you know, whatever his, uh, I guess, political will is, kind of use Commodus to achieve those goals. So he continues to Cleander and Commodus, but mostly, again, at this point, I think it's almost fair to say that, like, Commodus is just a, I don't say he's just a figurehead, but he's just kind of doing his own thing, and sure. Cleander's really running the day-to-day. -day. He continued to sell positions um, and administrations, and the administration of the empire fell into disarray. The military, for the first time in a while, is actually not the force that it used to be. So under, like, Hadrian and Marcus and Antoninus Pius, it was like they were always being, you know, going through drills and making sure that they were in fighting shape. In this case, that starts to go away. There's desertion in the military, general unrest in the provinces because, again, leaders are being changed every five seconds. And this is when it kind of all comes together. So there's a climax came in the year 190, which had over tw had exactly 25 consuls in one year. 
So usually it's just two. Mm-hmm. 25 consuls, all appointed by Cleander, which is a record in the thousand-year history of the Roman consulship. And basically, you know, the consul used to be this distinguished position after you earned after 20 to 30 years of excellent service to the empire or to the republic. It was not even a shell of that now. It was basically just a piece of paper that you could buy. And so, again, if you paid more, you got the consulship. And sure. that's what essentially has now become of, you know, Rome and, and everything like that. And so the question is, where's Commodus during all of this? And, well, well, maybe I think this is a good segue into he was, you know, training to be a, to be a gladiator. So, I think this is when some of the stuff starts to get a little... He, he started to scratch your head and go, this guy was an emperor. So kind of this set the stage in Rome. So musicians, artists, and most of all gladiators are the lowest rung of society. So they're the poor of the poor. Um, typically gladiators are mostly slaves. So, a, so for example, a, you know, a noble person, a Senator, you know, fighting in the gladiatorial ring or being an artist, that was like unheard of, never would happen. A emperor fighting as a gladiator it's not even that it was unheard of. It was almost like unspeakable. Like it's like it was yeah, something that would just yeah. break people's brains. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's like probably was, I would say it's like, a, a, you know, like contemporary example, you know, like a, a leader of a government being on the front lines. You know what I mean? It yeah. just doesn't like, you know, it just doesn't compute. Yeah, exactly. Like Joe Biden leading the charge into like a battle or something like that. Sure. Like it's exactly. Just, it's just yeah. like, it's yeah. not something that you can even think of, but Commodus actually though, maybe not the Joe Biden examples, not the best example just based on his age, but Commodus <laughs> was actually a decent fighter, well-built strong. Um, so he was, he trained and took to his gladiatorial training quite seriously and became quite yep. a good fighter. Makes sense. Again, given his panache for uh, physical activity as a youth, yeah. you know? Exactly. Yeah. Definitely living in a military camp and stuff. Definitely mm-hmm. had the opportunity to, to learn some of those things. But of course, he never fought a fair fight. Can't have your emperor dying in the ring to. Well, that to was going slavery. to be my question to you, actually, because yeah. I had read about that, but I didn't see anything. But I, you know, just assumed that those uh, gladiatorial games in which he took part weren't likely um, completely fair yes. <laughs> across the board. There would be uh, situations where he was given, you know, a a sword that's of the finest steel the, in the empire to some crappy kind of broken up weapon or something that you know would, would shatter when one Thomas hit away it. from just yeah. breaking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's he's again he was never going to be killed. Like you can't have that that risk. So they always rigged sure. all the fights for him. The best is that attendance was mandatory for all senators so easiest way to get on his hit list don't show up to the the games where he's fighting um so in the arena communist opponents always submitted to the emperor so you know as a result he never lost um cassius dio claims that (laughs) this is again this is where it really starts to get crazy cassius dio claimed that citizens of rome who were missing their feet through illness or accident were taken into the arena tethered together for communists to club to death while pretending they were giants Dio also wrote that it was, I know, maybe, maybe we'll stop there. So I guess the idea is like he stacked them on top of each other. And then he's like, oh, I'm like a David versus Goliath situation. And so I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, he Dio also wrote that it was Commodus's custom to privately use deadly weapons to fight murdering and maiming his opponents for each appearance in the arena. He charged the city of Rome a million, um, I guess it's sisters. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it's this silver coin. So basically, every time he was there, charged the city a million of these silver coins. 
which again strains the economy um Commodus was also known for fighting exotic animals in the arena often to the horror and disgust of the roman populace according to cassius dio Commodus once killed a hundred lions in a single day later he decapitated a running ostrich with a specifically designed dart and afterward he carried his sword and the bleeding head of the dead bird over to the senator's seating area and mentioned as though they were next dio notes that the targeted senators actually found this more ridiculous and frightening and kind of laughed it off um and then there was occasions where Commodus killed three elephants on the floor of the arena by um, himself, and then he also killed a giraffe. In, in one, yeah, I saw, I, I read about that also, and I, I saw bear was thrown into the mix, and that he was also known to participate in hunts, and he would stage fights between animals for his own entertainment. Exactly, totally normal behavior, right? Especially yeah. for an emperor. Yep. So yes, checks out. So this is the the kind of person we're dealing with. Is this? self-absorbed like i want to create these grand spectacles and you know a lot of when we see like ancient roman you know great warriors it's like i want to achieve like look at julius caesar for example he may have had this you know i would say cockiness of (laughs) and kind of self-centeredness of someone like communist but his thing was i'm going to invade an entire country and take over all this land and bring military glory to to rome versus I'm going to stage fights in an arena and just have everybody, you know, gushing over me all the time and getting that instant gratification. So it's the same sort of thing. But again, Julius Caesar understood this is going to take me decades to figure out. It's going to be a slow process and I'm going to get what I want versus Commodus. Give me that instant feedback. I need to cut off Mm -hmm. the heads of various things and see the crowd cheer for me and things like that. It's it's interesting. You kind of that that point of self-absorption, right? And ego. And when we kind of contrast that to his father marcus aurelius it's interesting because you know i don't think we even used the word self-absorbed or egotistical (laughs) once when in that podcast and we talked for an hour on 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 marcus aurelius and his successes and i think just to kind of double down on 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 the the self-absorption so i had a couple of points that came up as well um this one i think you know these two would probably you know really just hammer it home for people so um, when we're talking about like personal servants and staff. So Commodus apparently had a large um, group of personal servants and staff who catered to his every whim and every need. Um, and he would often dress in elaborate costumes amongst them and demand to be treated like a god. Um, statues and artwork. So he would commission numerous statues and works of art in his own likeness, which he would display throughout the empire. Um, he had a particular interest in Egyptian art, and he often commissioned works that depicted himself as an Egyptian pharaoh. It doesn't end with this guy, right? Like, even the statues, too, he would dress himself up like Hercules, because he didn't think he was like Hercules. He thought he actually was Hercules, who would come back and... Like, there always is a level of this with any emperor. You almost have to, sure. you know, almost... And you can see, almost deify yourself, and, like, you are above everybody else, because that's part of what you do to command power like it's not out of the ordinary for an emperor to build statues put them on coins and stuff like that but there's usually always a means to the end this just seemed like it's so yeah yeah. it's so interesting too though right like compared to again like well i guess i have a couple points on the comparison between or the contrast between him and his father but with like with marcus realis you have this kind of philosopher king this like Mm -hmm. this sage you know that is kind of there and you have this you know the the myth surrounding him and you know it's kind of like he's deified in, in a certain way yeah. but you know in in the in the total opposite spectrum 
versus Commodus, who is, you know, is kind of who's taking like legitimate steps to deify himself yeah. <laughs> without, you know, the, the kind of uh, positive connotations that we associate with, with uh, Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. I even think in meditations too, Marcus talks about like, don't worry about leaving a legacy. That's not something that's important yet. It's kind of funny yeah. that he has one of the best legacies that was, exactly. that yeah. was left. And so, yeah, I guess that message doesn't really seem to go to Commodus, which again, Another great segue into my subheading here that I have called Commodus' Crazy Stories. So I got about six or seven here that I'm going to read through, and then, Richie, we can get uh, your reaction to some of these. So sure. first one is, again, we, he, we talked about him believing he was the incarnation of Hercules, so he would frequently emulate the legendary hero's feats by appearing in the arena to fight wild animals, commissioning statues of him um, dressed as Hercules. Uh, there's a rumor that he threw an operator of a bathhouse into an oven when the water wasn't warm enough or he had him thrown in and didn't do it himself. <laughs> he changed his name to, so this is going to, this is a long one, to Lucius Alius Aurelius Commodus Augustus Herculeus Rom, Romanus Exupertorius Amazonius Invictus Felix Pius. Um, he changed the names of the months of the of the year to match his now exactly 12 names i read that yeah that's (laughs) he declared himself the new romulus so romulus and remus are the founders or kind of the story is that they were the founders of rome so he claimed he was the new romulus and ritually refound rome renaming the city colonia lucia ania commodiana which again named after him the legions were renamed commodity the fleet that imported grain from africa was termed alexandra Comedia Togata, the Senate was, this, again, the Senate was named after him. The palace was named after him. Um, the people were named after him. And then all these reforms were, were named after, were named after him. So basically he just renamed everything after him. Um, and this is kind of, you know, near the end, he would bring people in um, to the palace with missing limbs. And the quote was watch them hobble around, toy with them, and then eventually kill them. He used to play operation on people so i think we can leave the details out on that one and then he killed his wife for having an affair which again is the ultimate like does he not get the irony this guy is probably doing that on a daily basis um yeah so again this it just kind of gets worse and worse and worse um essentially like naming the 12 months after yourself naming this the one that you don't touch is the city of rome itself and you rename it after you so I'm That's actually blown away, with. to be honest with you, at that level of narcissism. It is actually quite incredible. He probably mm-hmm. would have been an influencer in the modern era. Uh, <laughs> I think so, <laughs> to yeah. To be honest with you, a really successful one, probably. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite... Um, I'd, I'd read some stories, but I didn't read those stories, and I'm actually quite blown away. Um, and if anything, I think that just really emboldens the contrast for me between just one generation of of rulers and kind of elite families within you know if we're if we're comparing uh him to his father like that is just is mm-hmm. re- that is absolutely remarkable and i don't know how you explain it in any way shape or form i am ab- like i'm at a loss to try to understand yeah. how you know to that I, I think i made the point in the last episode you know, that analogy people use, and I think I said, um, you know, in some cases, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And in this case, you know, I believe the apple fell and it was thrown. And now, you know, I don't think thrown <laughs> is even remotely close enough to kind of, you know, 
to capture how how divergent these two these two people were. It's almost like yeah, put the apple in a cannon and and launch it across. <laughs> you know, it's, I just it, again, I think we'll get into the nature versus nurture discussion, but sure, yeah, you know, maybe yeah, like <laughs> I get I'm lost for words too because like other than just saying this guy was nuts, like. Maybe that's all it really was, but let's maybe just maybe. wrap up his his story, sure. um, yep. and then we can get into a little bit of. Maybe we can. We try not to speculate on here, but I think you have to speculate sure. a little bit because you have to. This, yeah, yeah, this is just there's too He's much going on here. He's asking for it. He's <laughs> yeah, asking exactly. for it. What did he think was going to happen? Here, right. <laughs> so, so again, after this kind of renaming Rome after himself and renaming everything, people are starting to realize, like, oh boy, this guy's. This guy's a little a little bit different than I think what we realized. Like everyone kind of knew he was something different and maybe they were able to manage it, but this is getting a little bit ridiculous. So a couple of things happened. So a food shortage um, took place in Rome and it was blamed on Cleander. So what happened was the pe- uh, people kind of who were kind of against Cleander sent a bunch of children out with anti-Cleander banners. And the one thing about the Romans in this crazy time period was everybody was in agreements that clubbing children to death is probably not a good idea. So... The That's children good. are fine. You know, they have some good news here, right? That's so they good. went out with their anti-Cleander banners. But then this started a riot, and basically everyone was shouting out against Cleander. So Cleander sent out the guard to put it down. But then there was also, like, the urban police that were run by a man named Pertinax. He sent them in, and Cleander thought, oh, great, they're here. They're going to help put the mob down. But he actually put, he told them to go in and protect the mob from the guard. And so the guard was like, well, we're overmatched now. So... Cleander runs to Commodus for help. Naturally, Commodus gives him up because what does he care, right? Everybody's yeah. expendable in his world. Um, you know, Cleander's given to the mob, um, and then they kill him and drag him through the streets. And then, um, naturally, another round of purges is gone. So anybody close to Cleander, Commodus kills, confiscates property. You know, kind of the, the same song and dance for that time. Um, and then later on, um, Commodus's new mistress at the time found out a list of people he planned to kill for the year. And again, we don't know. Again, he has a list, right? Uh, here's my list. Right? For a and I'm year. Really, yeah, for a year. <laughs> I know. It's funny because I read that and I was like, oh, yeah, he had a list. And then you start laughing and I'm like, right, that's an absolutely <laughs> insane thing to do. Um, so he has his list. The mistress, I don't know if somebody was on there that she was close to or whatever. And sure. so she tries uh, to poison him. He gets wise to it, spits it, spits out his, uh, his food. Um, but then... A bunch of people in the Senate realize, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. They have another man named Pertinax who they're like, we're going to get you to take over the throne. He was a little bit hesitant, but he realizes like someone's got to do it. Um, so they send in his wrestling partner. Um, he's in the bath at the time. Um, he goes in and actually strangles Commodus to death um, while he's in the bath. So Commodus is dead, but like we kind of talked about, the next year is called the year of the five emperors. So Pertinax takes over, is killed by the Praetorian Guard. Then the Praetorian Guard sells off the the actual um, emperorship to the highest bidder. So this whole precedent of selling off office actually is now going to someone, like it's going to the highest office in the land. Someone ends up buying it, and then people are like, no respect for this guy. He gets killed. A bunch of people take over, and eventually... Septimius Severus, who was the governor of Africa, who we mentioned earlier, was fired from his position. Um, he takes over. But the big thing here that's different is he's seen how terrible this system is that Commodus was running, yep. this buying and selling, and how the government is essentially, and he, the way he looks at it is if the government's a failure right now. And so he comes in and essentially has this 
I would call it like a centralized, almost like a despotism where it's like, I run everything, everything comes through me. And he only cared about the army. He was like, just keep the army happy because they'll keep me in charge. And he was, yeah, outside of really adding some stability to the emperor and the empire, he was a pretty bad leader, I would say. And so mm-hmm. that kind of led into his kids taking over and his one son, Caracalla, was maybe just as crazy as Commodus. And this, this turnover of emperors over and over again throughout this third century because these institutions were essentially broke down and Commodus, again, was he totally responsible for this or did he accelerate the process that was going to happen inevitably? Sure. Maybe a bit of both, but that's kind of what led to this, what we call the crisis of the third century until Diocletian takes over and brings some stability back to the empire. But again, it's a going from this Roman piece to a full-on crisis century um, with Commodus kind of jam-packed right in the middle. It's kind of where he gets the the unfortunate kind of title of, you know, the end of the, the great Roman times and yep. the beginning of the end. So yeah, that's him. That's Commodus what, for you. What and a his, way to go out, honestly. Yeah. And it just, again, I think, you know, before we get into the, like the last part of our discussion, I think just, just that narrative, the story surrounding him, it, it couldn't be more different <laughs> than the episode yeah. we did on Marcus Aurelius. Right. And, and I, and I kept going back to this just because like my, my, my mind couldn't let it go, mm-hmm. you know, this, the, this, the divergence between father and son. So I, I made, I just did like a quick list of, you know, like key differences between Marcus Aurelius okay. and, and Commodus just to kind of, um, you know, put it out of like, you know, get it on the paper essentially, because I just had such a hard time kind of reconciling the, 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 those two realities. So the first bucket was kind of like personality. So what's Marcus Aurelius known for? You know, he's wise. He has humility. He's philosophical in nature. You know, he's a philosopher king. He's well-educated, reflective. He wrote about his thoughts and ideas and meditations. Then you have Commodus. You know, he's known for his arrogance, impulsiveness, lack of self-control. He's more in, interested in indulging his own pleasures and self-serving than in governing the empire effectively. We have military experience, right? And this was kind of a, a point of contention when we started the analysis on Marcus Aurelius, which was he had a very great formal education, but he didn't necessarily have the military uh, tactician skills or expertise that his predecessors had, but he was able to adapt and learn and, you know, actually have some success uh, legitimately uh, against, you know, a, a, a several external threats to the Roman Empire. Like we had mentioned the Parthians and, and the Germanic tribes. He was praised for his leadership. Commodus had no military experience and wasn't really interested in it. Um, He was much more interested in staging extravagant gladiatorial games rather than defending the empire. Um, And then kind of, you know, the two last ones, leadership style. It it couldn't be more different. You know, Marcus Reyes, what's he known for? Being fair and just as a leader. He's well-respected by his subjects and his fellow elites for how wise and even-handedness he is. He's open to advice from his advisors. He took their opinions into account when making decisions. <laughs> you know, like that is a great leader. Those are decisions. Those are things you want in someone who's going to be a leader. And then contrast it to Commodus, who's known for tyrannical and capricious leadership. Again, he's more interested in consolidating his own power than in governing. And he often ignored the advice of any of his advisors. More or less, it seems like his advisors just told him exactly what he wanted to hear, whether it was the truth or not. Yeah. And then ultimately, ultimately legacy. And we're talking about father and son here who couldn't have two more, you know, disparaging, disparagingly different legacies. Marcus Aurelius is, is remembered as one of the greatest emperors in, in Roman history. 
He's the philosopher king. His books are still studied today. You know what I mean? I have a book. I have meditations right next to me right now. He's remembered for his military victories and his efforts to maintain stability. Um, and Commodus, what's he remembered for? More or less, you know, as a, as a failed emperor who is, you know, often associated with the, you know, beginning of the end for the Roman Empire through his incompetence, extravagance, and just general cruelty. Yeah, this is like a virtue piece too to that, right? Like, I can't remember yep. what it was. I saw somebody talk. They were. It was like some redditor talks about like a situation where like how each of the emperors would treat a situ- something like like that was going on and it was like you know Commodus and Caligula would be in- incredibly cruel in the situation Julius Caesar would make it sound like it was 10 times more crazy than it was and then Marcus Aurelius would nurse I think it was like a it was like a beached whale or something like that that turned up in Rome and they were talking about it. And it's like Marcus Aurelius would have been out there like throwing water on the whale personally and making sure and nursed it back to health and then would go visit it every year to make sure it was doing well versus Commodus would rip it open and cut its head off and say, I'm Hercules who have slain yeah. this great whale or something like two completely different people. And then like, again, from the virtue side of things, but also like, I think you touched on the leadership style. And I think the piece that kind of stuck out to me was when we see it today with, with leaders, right? The, the best leaders are never the smartest. They're the people who, who know who to listen to, know who to, bring into the room and create a consensus and create a conversation. So for example, with Marcus doesn't know about military, he's going to bring in the best and the brightest. Yep. And he's going to ask them what to do and he's going to learn from them. And he's going to, he's going to know when to call them out when they're talking nonsense. And he knows when to really sit down and listen to exactly what they say. Where Commodus doesn't want to hear any of that. He just wants people to say, yes, we'll do whatever you want or don't worry about it. We'll handle it. We don't need your you know advice on this. So I think those are kind of two pieces that stuck out to me. And then I think the third piece, and there's something I got written down here, is just on his age, right? And so I did a quick look at the emperors up to this point. So when we talk about crazy emperors, you have Commodus, <laughs> you have Nero, and you have Caligula. They're the sure. three that kind of come up. Nero became emperor at 16, Caligula at 25, and Commodus at 19. When we look at most of the other emperors, about 40 is kind of the average age. Um, I think Marcus Aurelius was... I want to say late 30s, early 40s. Augustus was 36. You got a bunch of guys taking over in their 50s. So these are much more experienced men who have gone through the trials and tribulations. They know they have to earn their way in um, to become emperor. They weren't just given it at a young age or as this is your birthright, you're going to get it. So I think that's another piece too. And, you know, we talk about last episode how Machiavelli had this whole argument about how the great Roman emperors were adopted and that's why they were so good but i think the thing piece he really misses they were all just too young i think that's another piece too like just giving somebody again if you give any and i think we're, we're all guilty of this right when we're young we think we know everything but if you give them ultimate power maybe that's just a natural decline right and regardless of who commonest was as a person i think age is a huge huge piece to this that i don't think it's talked about enough um when we talk about like why he was so crazy yeah, I yeah, I think that's actually such a great point. What happens when you give a sixteen-year-old imperial powers? <laughs> yeah, imperial, like not you know just what power. I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah, imperial power, right? You give mm-hmm. a sixteen-year-old imperial power, and yeah, I yeah, you know, like it kind of makes sense when you frame it that way, right? Like when yeah. you when you think about the mindset of well, obviously, it's conjecture here, but we're talking about sixteen-year-olds as we know them. And they're not always the most rational. I can speak from experience. When I was 16, I was yep. most definitely not the most rational, pragmatic. Um, I think 
you know, you are very self-serving at that particular era of your life because you're, you are very self-involved and self-absorbed. And it's, it's always interesting to me, you know, when we talk about history and we talk about gaps of hundreds, if not thousands of years, and we're still just people at the end of the day and how, how, how many of those similarities kind of still exist. And I would imagine something similar would probably happen if, you know, you gave a 16, it'd probably be worse now, but if you gave a 16 year old a 2023 Imperial powers. <laughs> yeah. I guess that, that unchecked, you, you know, everybody's going to have to agree with you, right? Because you are the emperor, you have ultimate power. And if ultimately your life could be ended, if you don't do what the emperor says. So it's just like, again, I, th- I think that's, there's the, the age thing is definitely a big piece. There's definitely something lurking within Commodus, um, in terms of like some narcissistic personality disorder and I think sure. some capacity. Right. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting conversation about like the nature versus nurture piece of this. I think the, the nurture side of like everything that Marcus Aurelius gave him, I think definitely would have put him on the correct path. There was definitely some element of, of nature to who he was as a person. And I think mm-hmm. it's just like the experiences that he had in his life, like he was never really, given a major crisis in Rome, for example, where he had to go, oh my God, I have to take responsibility for my actions now. He's essentially a man-child for lack of a better term, like (laughs) just kind of like this young boy who's just been living this lavish life of doing whatever they want without consequences. And he just never really grew up, I think is is part of it as well. So yeah, I don't really know. You can go to a bunch of different directions. I'm sure we can speculate, but I think just kind of putting him in the environment that he did at such a young age with whatever was kind of lurking deep within him. And it could have gone the other way, right? Like say there was a big crisis right as Marcus died and they needed communists to defend the empire. Maybe it kicks something in him where he's maybe not quite his father, but he's maybe some somewhere in between yeah. of what he ended up being. Yeah. I think it's a bit of both, right? Um, you know, we're looking at this kind of decision, quote unquote, but to me, it's ultimately looking at, you know, what makes a good leader, right? And we're looking at father and son, which is such a unique historical example, right? Um, given the given the context, and I think like one of my key takeaways from this particular discussion, and it's not something that was kind of obvious to me before we started talking, is that there is absolutely no substitute for experience. Um, and I think to your point about age and. Um, if we look at the more infamous <laughs> emperors, <laughs> they tend to be younger in age, whereas the ones that we hold to a higher esteem or we don't hold to any level of infamy, you know, are typically a bit older. And I and I think there is a, a real um, point of analysis there that I think holds a lot of water. Yeah, definitely. It's just like it, it is just like there's just so many factors coming in, and I think your experience point is is bang on too. Of you know, we look at someone like Marcus, right, just joining Antonius Pius on all of these journeys, sitting in on all these meetings for you know ten plus years longer than Commodus would have ever had the chance to. Exactly. Plus, he's Marcus yep. Aurelius, so he's gonna you know take things in, right? So. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a tough one to see kind of where all this comes from and where did it go, but I think it's just a mix of that experience and, you know, the environment, right? Like thrown into the environment where you're given everything you want. No one's going to question yep, you. Exactly. It's almost an inevitable outcome for someone who's kind of predisposed to this type of personality. And, you know, again, being unchecked, I think is another thing too, right? Just like, I was just about to say that I think yeah. the unchecked ego and narcissism is probably a big one. 
Mm-hmm. I think everyone's a little narcissistic at times, right? Like there is right. a healthy level of narcissism that everyone should probably have, but it needs to be checked. There needs to be balances. And I think um, it's kind of take that to another uh, to another kind of uh, point of analysis. And a takeaway for me would be, you know, I think these two episodes back to back, the Marcus Reyes episode and the episode, this episode on Commodus is really illuminating because, you know, whether you are working on your own leadership skills or you're looking at people who want to fill leadership skills, I think you have two very good archetypes to kind of use as, uh, you know, guideposts, one in the direction of what you do want in a leader and another guidepost in terms of what exactly you don't want in a leader. And I think these two episodes back to back have done a really good job at, for me, kind of crystallizing that to, to a higher degree. Yeah, it's definitely a, a kind of, it's really is black and white at the end of the day when we look at it like this and you've mentioned it a few times, like just how polar opposite these two are and, mm. you know, one being so like open to experience, so open to what people are telling him, yep. listening, learning, reflecting, trying to improve and be better um, from a, personal perspective as a father and and as an emperor to someone who is you know whatever the shortest most i guess exciting and stimulating event that he could he could find he was going to do um again it is and but i think like it's part of the there's some themes i think from commodus right like he's crazy and everything but like again listening and understanding and yeah you know finding that healthy level of narcissism because i think too right if marcus definitely had his level of narcissism where he knew what he wanted and kind of helped him command some respect but sure, you know exactly. what that what yep. that balancing point is is i think the key with the two here yep totally agree awesome well i think that's maybe a good point to kind of kind of wrap up unless you've got any maybe closing thoughts no i think i think we kind of wrapped it up well i think leadership is a a funny thing and you have to be quite fickle with some of the characteristics and archetypes that we look at and i think this particular kind of i guess these two back-to-back case studies provide a very unique (laughs) uh historical example of how divergent leaders can be even when of the same bloodline and uh lineage and I think that's probably the coolest part about these two episodes back to back for me that has kind of uh, illuminated and probably even made me appreciate Marcus Aurelius more than I already did prior to learning more about him. Nice. Couldn't have said it better. And it couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's a, a really good way to wrap it up. So I guess I'll thank everybody for, for tuning into this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one and the last one. Um, kind of We changed things up a little bit, but I think it came together quite well. So hope you enjoyed and we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the History in Motion podcast. We appreciate your support. And if you're a fan of what you heard, please like, subscribe, and share. And we'll see you next time.